Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today, as always, well, not as always, but as usual, by my good friend and Republican uh, co-host, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay, how are you doing today? Good, Mike. How are you? I'm doing just fine, actually. You know, I thought we'd start today with the passage of the Republican tax cut bill, which President Trump signed into law on Friday. You know, there were a few last minute procedural hurdles for the bill to overcome, and those were due largely to the reconciliation procedure Senate Republicans chose, uh, you know, to use in order to completely shut Democrats out of the process. Um but, well, no, no, no. I, I don't know that that's fair. Democrats could have joined in the process had they had they chosen to. But uh, well, yeah, we've had we've had that regular order debate before. But anyway, now, but the law is essentially the same legislation we've been talking about for the last few weeks on the show, and 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 I don't think we need to kind of reiterate our arguments. But I think just by way of summary, uh, it's fair to say that you and I agree with the corporate tax cuts with you being more enthusiastic than I am about that part right. of it. Yeah. Um, uh, but we have a major disagreement on the individual side. Uh, as I, 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 would, I would characterize it as you holding to Republican orthodoxy that big supply-side cuts to so-called job creators will trickle down and make everyone better off, uh, whereas I believe that uh, very little will trickle down and the bill is not only going to fail to unleash the growth that administration officials are promising. Uh, uh, Gary Cohen, the top uh, Trump economic advisor, says we're going to see growth of 4% or more in 2018 now due to the tax bill. Um, but I think it's actually going to increase the highest level of economic inequality since the 1890s. So, um, it's the 1890s? That's, the 1890s. That's terrible. I know. So <laughs> do you think that about sums up our, our positions on that? I, I think so. Um, uh, I, I am uh, I am more confident in uh, growth uh, than than you are, and it's it's one of the wonderful things about these kinds of uh, discussions is uh, we will find out, uh, right? I mean, we will we will see how this uh, this tracks, and there there's going to be some arguments, um, obviously, about if there is a, a big economic resurgence. Um, I, I would anticipate folks saying this is really just a, a delayed effect of the Obama stimulus from 2008 uh, or 2009. Um, uh, but but I think the, the more the more realistic reading uh, would be that it's, it's related to the tax policy. And, and and I would say this is, um, you know, you mentioned the trickle down. Some companies have already started uh, trickling down um, uh, money to employees in the form of, of bonuses. Uh, and uh, wage increases, um, notably, uh, I think Comcast and AT&T, AT&T, uh, who are also uh, these. These, of course, would be the, the folks who would be cheering the uh, repeal of net neutrality. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I you have to say that's some three three hundred thousand workers. I think uh, are getting uh, significant thousand dollar bonuses now. And and again, like Nancy Pelosi has sort of sneered at that, uh, but. Uh, thousand bucks is a thousand bucks. Sure. You know, and, and I've said this before and I'll say it again. I hope I'm wrong about my uh, predictions that it's not going to affect growth much, uh, though, you know, I, I'm not the only one saying that, obviously. Uh, the Federal Reserve 
doesn't think it's going to do uh, nearly as much as the administration does. Goldman Sachs doesn't think it's going to do nearly as much as the administration does. But, you know, we're all better off, I think, other things being equal with more growth. Though, again, that that uh, to the extent to which that's going to, I'll put it in a more uh, palatable way for conservatives, the extent to which a rising tide is going to lift all boats or if just going to bring up a lot of rich people on that swell, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. But, but of course, I think it's, I think it's uh, ridiculous to hope that this fails. I mean, because we, right. you know, we would all want to, we would all want increased growth and uh, growth that benefits everyone. So I What's, hope I'm wrong, very- but I don't think I'm going to be. That's very patriotic of you. You know, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty patriotic guy, I'd like to think. I, you know, I would add, the other thing that I think people are going to take a look at is the press on this tax cut, um, tax tax reform, um, has, has tended towards the hyperbolic, um, and, and, and I think they're going to be burned by that, um, simply because, they I mean, the polls show as well, it's unpopular, because most people think they aren't getting a tax cut. Uh, when in fact, uh, I think 80% of all Americans are going to receive a, a, a tax cut, and those those 20% who aren't are are folks who are going to be in the upper tier. Um, so I, I mean, I think that's that's going to be sort of sort of uh, become self-evident once uh, you know people start getting their checks in February and the withholding is different. Uh, and uh, it'll certainly be apparent uh, further down the road. Now, it's, the, the question is, will the Republicans be able to take advantage of, of you know, credit for this? Um, we'll see. But, uh, you know, I, I have a couple things I wanted to bring up about this that we haven't talked about at least that much. Uh, this is going to be a rough time for the IRS uh, because, of course, they're the ones who have to work with this this new code and there's going to be new withholding and all kinds of other stuff that they have to do. Basically, a major tax firm uh, requires that the IRS does even more. And back in 1986, after the last major tax reform, Congress actually significantly boosted IRS funding so that they could handle this increased workload. And, uh, you know, the Kevin Brady, who's the House Ways and Means Committee chair, he says he plans to sit down with the IRS commissioner and talk about implementation, though from the tone of his remarks and from what he from what I took from those, it sounds like he thinks this should be done without any additional appropriations. And I think that's a that's a big problem, especially given the fact that since 2010, the IRS's budget has been cut by $900 million at 17%. Their staff has been reduced by 23%. So they're being asked to do an awful lot more with an awful lot less. And I think that's a, that's a big mistake if you want this actually to work. I, 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 I'm, in, I'm starting to anticipate the, uh, the left's line for when the um, um, IRS sort of slow walks the, uh, uh, the changes to the withholding. Um, I consider consider this though. I think with with the new tax uh, proposal that's out there, you're going to see a lot fewer people itemizing, which really simplifies the job for taxpayers and the IRS. Um, well, you know that that's interesting because I of mean, course I think it, it's it's it is going to be. It, it may not be the the postcard that uh, Paul Ryan uh, promised, but I think it might be 
just sort of a one pager back and front as opposed to uh, schedule A and and yeah, all the various attachments that go with that. Well, well, for some people, certainly. But I mean, this is not, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that in early November, when Republicans announced this, they oversold the simplification part of it. This did not really drain the swamp uh, to any significant degree. Uh, you know, one thing President Trump said, for instance, when when this was announced of the, the outline was announced in early November, he said the only people that aren't going to like this, the only business is going to be H and R Block. Well, um, since that since that date, H and R Block stock is up fourteen percent. So I don't know. I think the markets know if you believe in that. So <laughs> uh, you know. no, and I, I do believe in that, and I, I we can uh, talk to them. That that is sort of a um, I don't know. That's 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 a topic for another day. I think what H and R Block does is. Uh, again, something that's I think maybe people will will do that the first year and then realize, oh wait, there there isn't uh, this is easier than it used to be. Um, I, I guess my comment on the <laughs> I think maybe the the measure of of how much you're draining the swamp is is sometimes uh, how angry are the alligators. Uh, and I think the the alligators are, have shown themselves to be pretty angry, and I think that maybe is a sign of. Uh, that this is going to do some uh, some significant uh, good in in swamp drainage. Well, I, I think you're wrong, but I hope you're right. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention about the IRS: a lot of people don't realize this, but like a lot of parts of the federal government, actually, the technology that the IRS uses, much of it is incredibly antiquated. They actually, for a lot of their systems, they're based on a programming language that was developed in the late 1950s, and you know these kind of overhauls of that that. that to kind of bring these things up into, heck, uh, 1990s technology even, this, these things require a lot of time and money. And this to me, and I've, I've made this argument before, you know, it, we talk about big and small government, and this is something I mentioned in my blog uh, this week. What, what we, I think, should focus on is making smart investments to make government more efficient and more effective. And I think this is one of these things that would make a lot of sense to do, but it's really hard to sell as, as a PR type of thing, I think. I, you know, I think you could sell it if, if I'm a Republican and I am a Republican, um, I, I would, I would sell it as, uh, let's invest in uh, more computers and upgrade technology for the IRS. And, uh, we're going to end up cutting IRS staff. I think that would be a, uh, a, a, a good Republican argument to have. And I have no, no issue in, in, uh, principle with, with that sort of expenditure, um, but uh, and I think also if you you look at the, the bigger term, the type of money you would be talking about um, uh, is spending for the IRS uh, to do these these upgrades, uh, again, is insignificant compared to uh, everything that that is going to come out of the uh, the tax reform piece. So. Well, sure, I I would agree with you, but I think a lot of uh, a lot of conservatives who might actually respond to that argument would be worried that they get a challenge from the right. Someone saying, "Look, they sure, approved a billion dollars more for the IRS," you know, and that's uh, that's rough to do. One final thing before I move on, I should point out that President Trump still claims that this is this tax bill is going to hurt him. Though, of course, without the release of his income taxes, we can't tell um, either way. And, and you know, I'd sure like to see legislation come out that requires that. Both major party nominees released their returns for the last decade, though I don't know that that's going to happen anytime soon. Though I think that would be a positive thing. Nah. <laughs> nah. Okay. Fair enough. I, mean, I, I just, you know, I, I, again, I would say I don't see the need for legislation on that. Uh, I wouldn't they, either. They, they, they do, they do, or they don't, and the the uh, you know the political consequences uh, flow from that. If if people are really 
uh, concerned and really want to see someone's uh, tax returns or won't vote for them without seeing their tax returns, well, there's your answer. Yeah, well, I I, I understand the argument. I disagree. And, and look, but- I, I would I would agree. I mean, I, uh, to me personally, if I were Trump, I think he should have reduced his tax returns, uh, uh, but but he didn't, and uh, he still won. So he did. Definitely, he did. All right, uh, let, let's move on. Uh, this week, the United Nations responded to President Trump's recent recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Um, the General Assembly voted overwhelmingly in favor of a resolution supporting the longtime international consensus on the status of Jerusalem, and that is that it's a matter that can only be settled as part of an Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement. Only nine countries voted against the resolution, the U.S. and Israel, of course, along with, let me get the, the list, this impressive list, Togo, Micronesia, uh, uh, Na, Nauru? Nauru? Nauru. Yes. Uh, uh, Pelia, help me out here, Jay. Uh, Paulo, I Paulo, think. Paulo, thank you. Marshall Islands, Guatemala, and Honduras. Uh, now, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, said that the United States would be taking names and that a vote against the United States was a show of disrespect. And of course, President Trump followed up by suggesting that countries not voting with the U.S. might well see their foreign aid slashed in retaliation. So, Jay, what what did you make of all this? Well, I I don't think it's any surprise, right? Do you? I mean, this is is in large part what the U.N. does. It sort of exists almost to condemn Israel. Uh, They've... (laughs) So I think of the the UN Human Rights uh, Commission. There was a uh, I'm, there was something of fifty percent of of all their resolutions um, within the last you know, ten years. It was five years, ten years. Uh, you know, we're we're for the purpose of condemning Israel. Uh, and you look at at uh, some of the unsavory characters who are on that um, uh, that committee. Um, look, this is this is sort of part and parcel for what the UN has done for. 40-some years um, uh, condemning Israel, going back to the idea of, you know, Zionism as racism and so forth. Um, so to me, it's, it's, it's no, big, uh, uh, no big surprise, no big deal. Um, I think Nick, Nikki Haley is, is, uh, has done a, a really pretty, pretty good job as a, a UN ambassador. And, and I think Calling out these other countries, I think it's a good thing. Now, whether look whether we actually um, are going to you know cut foreign aid to these places, uh, I doubt, because I think there are are plenty of other concrete strategic considerations that go into that uh, beyond what is you know this this point of pretty much a symbolic vote. Um, but but it's good to I think flex our muscles and and to recall that also the, the United States. Funds uh, more than a quarter of all of the UN's budget, um, and and uh, that's awfully generous of of the US, considering how it's it's often treated at the UN. So, well, you know, to me, it reminds me a little bit of, of sort of how I feel about the Paris uh, Climate uh, Agreement. That when almost the entire world seems to be lined up against you, I, I'm not saying that you should just follow along with the rest of the world, but it should at least give one pause to say, well, you know, almost we, this is, this is the extent of the coalition we can get a few islands in the Pacific, essentially, uh, and a few Central American countries. Maybe we should, maybe that's a message. Maybe at least we should be uh, slightly reflective about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I don't think I see that. And number, uh, secondly, she said this idea that Nikki Haley, maybe she misspoke, I don't know, but 
You know, she flat out said essentially that voting against us is a sign of disrespect. I think that that just sounds ridiculous. That sounds like, you know, threatening and bullying. And you can certainly respect the country and not follow right along with them. I don't think that we've suddenly disrespected, say, I don't know, Canada or the UK, both of whom, you know, voted uh, against us on this, I believe. So, I mean, would you agree oh, with I that? Think, oh, I, no, I think, I think that is just sort of disrespect. And I get the idea of, of uh, uh, Nikki Haley saying that, uh, uh, <laughs> making a statement saying it's disrespectful, disrespecting us to vote against us is bullying. Uh, I mean, consider that what happened is the U United States, which is its its own sovereign nation, uh, decided to uh, place its embassy uh, in Jerusalem. What well, hasn't actually happened, uh, but but it would it would view Jerusalem as the capital, which is how the Israeli uh, independent sovereign state views it, as well as, uh, as, as I think you mentioned the Russians, which is kind of funny. But, um, you know, we, we made that decision, and then the world rises up to condemn that decision. So, you know, look, who's being the bullies here? And I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't buy this, and I've said this before, the same with Paris, that, uh, you know, the measure of leadership is, uh, uh, well, we go along with everybody else. Sure, so, no, and I, I agree with you on that, but I guess my larger point is, are you saying that it's impossible to vote against the United States and still respect the United States? Oh, no. But, okay, but I just I wanted to be clear say, on but, that. No, but I think you can say, you can say that a, a particular vote is an act of, of disrespect or is disrespectful. Okay, so in other if, words— If you follow me, it's, it's yeah. not, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, hey, hey Britain, it's over. Um, right, no, sure. No, this is a but, matter but, of but, we, but, think that, we think that action was— was disrespectful, but, but on the, but on this issue, you're saying that uh, another country can't simply disagree with, or simply can't can't simply say, you know, we believe we still hold that the status of Jerusalem should be determined as part of a final uh, agreement between the, the Israelis and the Palestinians. That uh, that acknowledging that or that approving that is somehow uh, disrespectful automatically to the United yeah, States. Yeah, well, again, the, the the resolution though wasn't wasn't to say, hey, we think that the status of Jerusalem should should be up for grabs in in some peace settlement down the road. The resolution was to condemn the United States of America. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, th I think that is disrespectful. I mean, and if you want to take the position uh, that um, no, we, we disagree with this and, and it ought to be settled in a, a broader, uh, uh, you know, peace agreement. Um, fine. Then you can do what the 35 countries who abstained did and say, look, we're going to abstain from that vote. Right. Okay. I, point I, think, out. I think let's put it this way. If, if you're going to condemn uh, someone again, that's, that's a little stronger than we disagree with you. Okay, fair enough. And I should point out that actually that one of those countries abstaining was in fact Canada. I think earlier I said that they voted against it and they didn't. Uh, the UK did though uh, vote against it. All right, moving Canada's on. Canada's still cool. What's that? Canada's still cool. <laughs> there you go. Okay, now before we get to our next story, we'd like to thank our newest supporters. Uh, thanks first to Jared and Murdoch. Uh, they are our latest monthly sustaining supporters through Patreon. Thank you both very much. Thanks also to Bond from Papillion, Nebraska, who made an extremely generous donation to the show through PayPal. And Bond writes, I've been a listener since the early days. Keep up the good work. 
And you know, Thank you. yeah, we really appreciate it. And of course, with our move to an ad-free format in February of 2018, your support, more important than ever. And if you'd like to join Jared, Murdoch, Vaughn, and all our other great supporters, just go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or PayPal links. Okay, go ahead, hey, Can Jim. I throw in one more thing about the UN? You sure can. Well, yeah, and this is this is something else to consider, is that the following day after the, the you know, condemnation, um, the uh, the UN General Assembly very broadly voted to also to condemn or to impose uh, sanctions on uh, North Korea, which was an effort uh, obviously led by the the US. So I mean I think that's that sometimes we need to separate uh, what the UN does, uh, which is often simply symbolic. Which I think you know the when you're condemning someone else's actions, that is purely symbolic, as opposed to things that actually might have some real teeth like increased sanctions. Uh, and, and I think it's, that's one of those, you know, it sort of shows, look, this is sometimes it's just a dance. Uh, it is just sort of uh, make believe when push comes to shove. Uh, you know, I don't think, you know, the, the U.S. did not lose any leadership credibility, I guess, uh, as evidenced by that, that vote the next day on North Korea. Okay, fair enough. I, I I don't know if I entirely agree with the not losing any credibility, but I but I take your point. So, and you know, uh, we we can kind of stick with national security stuff. I think because of course, this week President Trump presented his first national security strategy, and, and that's something that's been required of all presidents by Congress since back in the 1980s. And normally, this is really an almost unnoticed pro forma type of thing, but. President Trump, for whatever reason, I don't know, chose to highlight it by announcing the release of the document himself. Um, and the strategy calls for an America first approach, very Trumpian, and returns to a more, I would call it a more confrontational style than what we saw uh, in the Obama administration. It also downplays climate change. More, more assertive. Okay, okay, okay. Assertive. We can, yeah, that, that's a... <laughs> That's a different word, but okay. It also downplays climate change as a national security threat, despite the Pentagon's conclusion that climate change remains one of the greatest threats to U.S. security. And strangely, at least I think it's strange, it also calls for upgrading diplomatic capabilities, even though President Trump and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson have presided over what some call a gutting of capabilities at the State Department. I mean, you take a look at President Trump's budget request. He called for the State Department budget to be cut by nearly a third. A third. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, finally, the strategy calls for something called principled realism. It's one of those buzz phrases, I guess, um, which apparently entails acknowledging the role of power in international relations. Uh, that would be the realism part. But at the same time attempting to advance American values throughout the world. And again, I'd argue that that's something that President Trump doesn't necessarily always seem interested in doing, at least that is if you consider human rights to be an American value, which I do. Um, So go ahead, Jay. No, I think principled realism, I I would say I I like that, actually. Um, And and you have to, uh, I I can't imagine that Trump came up with that himself. Oh, no. Um, Because that sounds very political science-y. and sort of this is here a new doctrine and so forth. So I, I actually, to me, that makes a lot of sense because I interpret that as uh, doing doing what you can where you can. You know, do what good you can where you can. Um, you know, for example, again, to to challenge the human rights abuses that go on in China, 
is is more difficult because of China's size, their economy, the relationship with us. Uh, we can only have so much influence. Uh, for us to influence human rights in other countries where we have uh, a stronger influence uh, is something different. So I, I think, you know, and I've often often said this, it's, you know, is it's not necessarily hypocrisy to uh, to take care of of, of one uh, smaller evil or one one problem that's easier to take care of uh, just because you can't take care of the bigger problem. So I, I look, I think that's that's a that's a good that's a good uh, a good sort of view to take principled realism. I I, uh, I like that. Now and again, it's also it's fuzzy enough that you know it's it's difficult to tell where the the principle ends and the realism kicks in, but. You know, we we will see that. So yeah, well, I guess, and I've I've talked about this before. The one thing that bothers me is I I take your point. And I think it's a good point that you know we can only have so much influence over the uh, human rights, domestic, internal policies of another country. But 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 I think there's something to be said for at least making it an issue, understanding. And I think this fit this would fit in with what I would see as a principled realism is is making it an issue, bringing it up, and understanding that we probably aren't going to get a lot of movement on it, but not taking it off the table. And I think that's what President Trump has done too much of. Now, I understand some on the some on the on the right would argue that President Obama went too far the other way. And I guess you could almost say in part, and we see this time and time again, is that presidents, especially in foreign policy, often sort of counter react or, or swing the other way from the previous president. You know, obviously, after eight years of President George W. Bush, our, our foreign policy after that became a little less um, aggressive, uh, assertive, I guess you sure. could say. Uh, and then now we're seeing a, sw- a swing back after eight years of President Obama. And so that's, you know, cert- to a certain extent to be expected. But but I do wish that uh, President Trump would uh, would emphasize human rights uh, at least a little bit more when he talked with some of these foreign leaders. Well, you know, we've got some sort of good news to close out the show today. Uh, there won't be a government shutdown, at least not until late January, thanks to Congress passing a short-term extension that funds the government through January 19th. And President Trump signed the bill just before leaving for his Christmas vacation. Um, importantly, I think, the bill also provides stopgap funding for the Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP as it's sometimes called. Uh, nearly 2 million of the over 9 million kids covered by CHIP were actually at risk of losing their coverage in January if Congress hadn't acted to provide emergency funding. And for a while, it looked like that might actually happen. But I guess leaving millions of kids without insurance isn't anyone's idea of good politics. So a uh, crisis was averted for, for, for now, at least. So, Jay, uh, would you agree that that's reasonably good news, at least by our uh, greatly diminished American politics in 2017 standards? Well, I, I think so. And I, I think we both uh, predicted that this is what would happen. Mm hmm. Uh, I I don't think there was any appetite for a, a government shutdown, and and I don't think we're we don't seem to be at the uh, let's say the the tipping point the um, where, where that's going to happen. I don't think we'll we'll have a a government shutdown in January either, um, but uh, but we'll see. But I'm I'm willing to put my marker out right now that I think we will get uh, a, get a, a if if nothing else again continuing resolution and probably some some work on. Uh, the shoring up the Obamacare exchanges and uh, on uh, Dreamers, perhaps. 
Yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think we'll see action on on all of those things, and I, I hope there'll be at least some sort of bipartisan. Well, that's asking too much. Never mind. I'm getting 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 a little crazy here with the with the Christmas spirit and the optimism and all that kind of thing. So we'll just leave it at that. But uh, anyway, that is at least somewhat good news. So uh, let's move on to what we're reading, where you know we step back from the normal news cycle and talk about uh, more in depth, thoughtful things we're reading or listening to or watching. Now, before we do that, Jay, I understand. Uh, you don't have a what you're reading this week, but there's there's a one more issue that just kind of bugged you that you'd like. To well, talk you about. know, I think I can I can probably do it as a, a what I'm reading. I okay. would say um, uh, Yuval Levin uh, has a, a piece in uh, National Review. You can get on National Review online. Uh, no, HHS did not ban words. Um, and that just sort of goes with with what has sort of been sticking in my craw for the last week. Um the uh, hearkening back to, you know, there was the, the George Carlin bit of the uh, seven dirty words. Um, <laughs> there was a Washington Post story that reported, uh, this is verbatim from the Washington Post, the Trump administration is prohibiting officials of the nation's top public health agency from using a list of seven words or phrases, including fetus and transgender in official documents being prepared for next year's budget. Uh, now, then this, this of course, blew up onto the internet uh, of, of uh, zillions of, of memes that floated uh, flooded my inbox um, uh, and, and, you know, worrisome uh, uh, concerns of, of um, this is Orwellian and censorship and uh, what about people who uh, uh, need to communicate, you know, disease-related information and, you know, within the CDC and they can't do that. Uh, the terms, and, and I will I'll, I'll see if I have all seven in front of me. Um, also included uh, vulnerable diversity entitlement, um, uh, as well as transgender fetus. And what am I missing? Oh, science-based and evidence-based. Um, so there was this 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 big to do. And then, of course, what what troubled me was if you read the Washington Post um, article, the original reporting. Um, and Mike, this is something this is something you and I argue about. This is a, a grammar stylistic thing um the the excessive use of passive voice um this is going back 20 some years um but but the story is is written in in many ways um uh in the passive uh, the passive voice and and to me as someone who reads a lot and writes a lot um there was for example uh there was also a discussion that see i just did it um uh, which a prohibition had been conveyed verbally in a meeting among career officials, uh, when you use it, when someone is using the passive voice, it is always reason for suspicion, uh, because what they're trying to do is hide the actor of, of who actually did what, uh, and, and typically obscure what happened. And as, as this report, this story was reported, uh, in greater detail. And again, I, I would point you to the U of 11 piece. Um, what this actually was, was a meeting about, uh, Putting together your budget requests for the next um, uh, next biennium, next or next uh, fiscal year, and there was a stylistic guide that the uh, CDC had prepared. Now, this had been prepared not by Obama or not by uh, Trump uh, or political appointees, but by career CDC officials, and they had proposed not using words like entitlement and vulnerable and uh, poor. I think was another one. Because Republicans hate those words. And, and diversity. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, I, I think to some extent, yes, Republicans do may hate those words. But also, I mean, to me, when I'm reading something and 
you know, this is give me money and and you start in with the uh, diversity and and poor and and uh, vulnerable. Uh, that's the words that often don't mean much. They're sort of fluff. Uh, if you're if you are a budget hawk, <laughs> reading to say what does this actually do? Why should I actually support it? <clears throat> words like that shouldn't be included. I, I think that's that's just a strategic thing in writing these kind of proposals. But 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 so to me the the bigger the bigger piece is. Um, and then in this this meeting, which uh, as as uh, Levin reports, there were no political appointees. It was all career uh, CDC folks. They had other people chime in of other words that might not be be used, and that included transgender uh, and so forth. So, what what's what troubles me is this is this was blown up into a Trump bans language, uh, when what in fact happened was. Uh, career bureaucrats uh, suggested not to use certain words in budget documents uh, because they were afraid that it might strike Republicans uh, the wrong way. Um, and it, it just the, the, if you read the Washington Post story and compare to what really happened, and and this is again the first time I heard the, the Post story because I've 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 got some experience in this kind of thing and I've been in these kind of meetings. It it struck me immediately what happened, what was going on. Um, but, but the, the idea that, uh, Trump is, is, is banning words, it, it was a complete fiction. Uh, and yet the internet erupted with it. Um, and that, that's what troubles me. And if you are a, a Trump hater or a Trump skeptic, uh, like me, um, consider that whenever the mainstream media does these kind of things, Trump wins because eventually the, the story comes out and like, oh, well, he didn't really ban all that. Oh, and and look, my estimation of the uh, the Washington Post, which was not, you know, tremendous to begin with, has has increased a little bit because look, this these are people who cover these issues all the time. They knew what was going on. Uh, they could have reported this in a direct, uh, but not and not disingenuous way, but they chose otherwise. No, I I, I disagree. I sorry, I disagree. I agree with you on <clears throat> this. I think it was uh, bad reporting, sloppy reporting by the Washington Post, which usually does a, a most excellent job. But but again, I, I see it as more an indictment of media in general. With oh, you get this juicy scoop sort of thing and you run with it before you actually bother to check and like you said use the passive voice to to cover up perhaps some uh issues that there might be with it and, and i think this is definitely a case of of bad reporting a story that shouldn't have gotten out but it was just too juicy for today's media to pass the, up the words that, that are often used in the the more conservative world is is too good to check um and that's that's this kind of story. And, and you and I have talked about this, I don't know, numbers of times. Um, if you read a story that that says and, and it hits you right away, you're like, oh, it's just like what those SOBs would do. Um, reconsider, <laughs> because that's if it, if it appeals to your prejudices um, uh, so immediately like that, then I think there's oftentimes it's it's not accurate. I think, and and it's something we see on, you know, this is definitely, I'd say, a bipartisan thing. Uh, it's uh, a common occurrence on Fox News, the, uh, you know, the preferred outlet for much of the right. And we certainly sometimes see it, too, in The Washington Post, New York Times, and other outlets on the left. So, absolutely. All right. Well, I have a what we're reading thing. Uh, it's a book that I just recently finished called American Amnesia by political scientists Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson. Uh, it's a uh, uh, Hacker and Pearson have been doing, I think, great work about economic policy for, geez, a, 
a number of years now. It's a little less political sciencey than their previous book, Winner Take All Politics, uh, which I really enjoyed a lot. In fact, use in a number of my classes. Uh, I would definitely recommend it to anyone who wants sort of a big picture view of how sort of public policy, particularly economic policy, has changed since really since the 1950s. And I really like these kind of big picture and multi-generational type of things. Now, these are it definitely is a left wing type of perspective and they're a little further left than I am. But I think they have some uh, valuable insights about how the Republican Party became what it is and how the Democrats do became what they are from where we started, say, uh, in, in the 1950s. So I would definitely recommend that to folks. All right. All right. And also, I should mention, if you want something a little shorter, my, my latest blog post was about uh, government capabilities. And I write a little bit about the what I think is the false dichotomy between big government and small government. And uh, uh, we talked about that a little bit earlier when we were talking about the, the IRS thing and so forth. And I think to me, that's that's an example of there are instances where I think we can get some bipartisan agreement that it makes more sense to, to invest in government in certain ways, certainly that it sure it will increase the size of government, but it might actually lead to better outcomes for both conservatives and liberals. So anyway. You would prefer a, a small but brutal IRS. <laughs> Effective. Let's say that. Okay. <laughs> I'll use that word. All right. Well, uh, you know, before we close today, we'd like to wish everyone uh, a Merry Christmas, a happy holiday season, a fantastic new year, whatever you're celebrating during this period between uh, late December and early January. We hope it's a great one. Uh, and we'd also like to thank all of you for listening this year and helping us to grow 15 times the size we were at the beginning of 2017. That's a, that's a 1,389% increase. Uh, wow. That's that's which is that's significantly more than what the Congressional Budgets Office uh, predicted we'd grow at. <laughs> there you go. And yeah, it's all thanks to you all who are listening. We really appreciate it. Also, we're incredibly grateful for our wonderful financial supporters who've donated through Patreon and PayPal and who help make this show possible. So everyone, it's been a great 2017. We've really we've really enjoyed it. Uh, and. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we're going to actually be taking the next week off for our holiday break. But we will be back uh, with a Wednesday show on, I believe it's Wednesday, January 3rd. And then we'll be back with the Saturday show, uh, what, three days after that? So I guess that would be January 6th, wouldn't it, Jay? That sounds about right. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. Again, listener support. If you want to help us out, go to politicsguys.com. Click on either that PayPal or Patreon link. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can share the episode with your friends and followers, pass along new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter, and leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also does help. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're at mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We post stuff all the time there and we're also on twitter at politics guys exact- is, is it go is ahead it too late is it too late to, to order politics guys coffee mugs for christmas it well they probably won't get there in, ter- in time for christmas but they'd make a fine i don't know president's day gift or something right I guess, or, or, yeah, eastern orthodox uh perhaps that's uh, right there you go and we, we actually have we actually have a link on the website there. So, so. There, good good point. We should we should have really thought about that about a month ago. <laughs> oh, well. Anyway, uh, uh, we're such great. We're, we're so we're good at the merchandise that. stuff. Anyway, the executive producers of the Politics Guys are me, Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. 
Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski with an assist by the crazy barking dogs in the background that you might have heard. We had package delivery and my one dog just went totally insane. Sorry about that. Anyway, we'll be back from our holiday break with a new show on Wednesday, January 3rd. We hope you'll join us.